very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to a new season of Veritas, Season 8. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's season premiere, a three-hour interview with Cliff High, all you have to do is go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe for just pennies a day, you will have access to hundreds and hundreds of hours of truth that you will not get in the mainstream media. Right at the beginning, I want to thank everyone for all your support as we begin Season 8. And the only reason why we're still here is because of you, Veritas member. And for the holidays, or if you don't celebrate the holidays, that's fine. You can still give a Veritas subscription to a friend or to a loved one. Make a difference with the truth. And season seven of our futuristic metal-cased USB drive is now available. And did you know that you can purchase individual interviews now? They are available after 90 days off their original broadcast. By the way, check the Veritas store. We have new products now, very exciting, full fig acid and even full vibration machines. Check it out. And if you want to get in touch with me, have a suggestion, comment, or would like to be on this radio program, just click on the contact button of our website. And tonight, for season number eight, we have someone who has become a fixture on this radio program at the beginning of every season. A good friend of this program who does not need an introduction. And I'm referring to Cliff High from Half Past Human. Dot com. Well, Cliff, hi. Welcome back to Veritas. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm pleased that we're both still here. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, right this morning, you sent me the new Alta report. Right. I mean, I'm touching it. It's still hot right from the press. It just came out this morning, correct? Correct. Yes, indeed. Yeah. We've. It's been a, um, as you can imagine, the amount of data we've got is just tremendous. So just plowing through this stuff has just been, uh, I mean, we've been shoveling it out of the way to get at the nuggets that are worth reporting. There's that much. Most of it stemming from the um, uh, horrific uh, escalation in uh, terrorist and supposed terrorist attacks. One thing I did notice was the gap. Usually you have covering 2015 to 2017, but right now I see covering 2015 to 2022. Why the big gap between years? Uh, because we're getting a, uh, flush of, uh, long-term data. 
the way it works is that uh, people get all hyped, uh, emotionally upset. Their um, defenses, if you will, their inbuilt uh, narrative that keeps them from recognizing their own psychic nature breaks down. And in times such as uh, these in their uh, in the extremes, right, uh, of emotional uh, highs and lows, you you get this breakthrough. And when you get a breakthrough like this, we get tons of long-term data being brought in uh, with the language. So, for instance, uh, they may be discussing their uh, reaction to uh, any number of these terrorist attacks. And in somewhere in that paragraph or two, there's a... Uh, a hint of something else that that the data set picks up and then brings into the lexicon, and we're able to say, okay, uh, the um, this is a long-term data bleed through, and so that's what uh, causes the um, range that we're discussing to vary. Makes sense? Absolutely. And by the way, this report is available for sale now today. Correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's on the Half Past Human site. Yeah. You Great. can go get it. Yeah. Before we get to discuss uh, the Alta report and, and Terra, which is the first item on, on your list, let's discuss the latest shooting in San Bernardino, California. We've been told it was terrorism, but at first it seems that the gun grabbers were out minutes after the event happened. What's your take on this? Um, uh, let's let's uh, back up uh, or, or let's take a high elevation view of this, okay? Because uh, in the nature of my mind and my work, especially these past numbers of years, I uh, have a tendency to concentrate on um, uh, evolving or manifesting patterns. And therefore, uh, I get into a situation where the very first thing I examine is, is there or, or do we see any clues in any event that's placed before us in any of the media that brings out pattern recognition? And so we see that, aha, yes, there is one. San, San Bernardino, they had uh, no less than nine active uh, ongoing drills in that immediate area within four miles. Okay, so they had all these police drills going on. That's true in every single one of these uh, uh, media-hyped attacks, okay? And so we see uh, that that is indeed one flag. In, in Paris, for instance, they had active drills. They had their SWAT teams right there. The police are always within minutes when this occurs on, uh, you know, 9-11. They had all those uh, 119 dump trucks lined up ready, waiting to go as part of an exercise, uh, and so on and so on. So, yes, we have that pattern there. Now, do we have other patterns, uh, such as, is there a plethora of videos? Hmm, no, there's not. And therefore, this is another pattern, uh, such as the shooting in the supposed shooting in the concert in France. Where are all the videos? If you've got 50,000 people, I suspect you've got close to 48,000 uh, cell phones, each of which have cameras that are phenomenal and the ability to record and get onto the internet. So, where are the videos? We don't see that in San Bernardino either. And uh, so we say, yes, this is another one of these. Um, uh, it matches a pattern that I find disturbing. And then you have to ask yourself, are you a coincidence theorist or are you, are you a conspiracy theorist? If you're a coincidence theorist, then you believe all this stuff just is mere coincidence. And, and the repetition of coincidence in no way makes it a pattern such that, you know, nine uh, recent attacks and each of those attacks all had police drills or military drills ongoing at that moment in no way establishes a pattern. 
pattern in the mind of a coincidence theorist. If that's your belief system, then you will see this as the media wants you to uh, understand it. Otherwise, you'll start examining for other clues and you'll find uh, that there's a whole lot of stuff you can look at should you decide you want to go down any um, individual opening into the giant rabbit warren. And so I think of these as uh, individual rabbit holes, which you could go down to uh, through. So you could just choose any of these shootings, any of the um, uh, terrorist attacks, and uh, use that as your entrance. And then you'll plop down. It's not a single hole. You'll find yourself in a warren with all the rest of us scurrying around saying, wait a second, I got here by that door. How did you get <laughs> to this same spot? And it's all the same spot no matter what door you go down. I mean, I don't mean to make light of the people being killed, et cetera, et cetera. But I will note that, you know, the... Um, uh, every single government uh, in the Western uh, world has uh, on paper somewhere a um, admission that, yeah, it's acceptable for them to kill 18 or 20 people or 100 people in order to motivate the nation. And uh, they see this as no big deal. And so that being the case, you have yet, you know, yet another pattern. And thus, I fall into the idea of I'm going to question this and assume that because we live in the age of information, we know absolutely nothing in terms of what is true. Unless you can actually go out there and pat it with your hands and look at it, and even then there's some suspect about that, uh, I, says, I would suggest that you don't know anything that's true, and thus it's all speculation. So I don't accept what the media tells me is being true about any of these shootings. And I'm not because I've seen the pattern repetitiously now in the last nine uh, situations, I don't propose to follow it any further. I don't see any point in having my mind twisted uh, by following their trails. Sort of makes sense? It does. But if it's terrorism, which is, which is what we're told today, how dare politicians continue to bring gun control to the surface? Take gun-grabbing Geraldo Rivera commenting on, on the shooting when his, allegedly, his own daughter was at that concert in Paris, wasn't she a sitting dog over there? One would pr presuppose that, yes. And we also have, the, have to juxtapose the... Um, the we have to look at the conjunction, okay? Here you have a, a, an incident which the uh, government uses the Helgian dialectic, uh, dialectic of um, uh, you know, uh, problem, uh, reaction, reaction and proposed solution. And uh, they're implementing it. And instantly, another part of the pattern is somebody's agenda is instantly slapped up against the outside right. of the event, surrounding it such that within your mind, you're not able to separate it. Therefore, all of these shootings, instantly they slap up the gun gun grab approach right and and let's always remember we live in quote a developed country okay and so it it makes sense to look at history in no case uh, or the very first case of a developed nation on this planet getting absolute total control of guns was 1935 and Hitler. And they said right then, the day that that was achieved, hooray, hooray, now the police are safe and the government may uh, pursue its required uh, goals or, or agenda. I think it was goals, but uh, in German translation uh, at the moment, I can't really remember. In any event, though, the very first uh, instant we had of a successful gun control was Germany in the 1930s. And we all know how that movie played out, right? Uh, so, A, I would suggest that uh, if I were Jewish, I could not, as a person, I would not ever um, 
except any kind of gun control language in my presence, I would be very, very, very fierce and beating it down simply because as a Jew, I would know in history's times, aha, successful gun control equals slaughters of Jews. And we have this as a one-to-one correlation with the only ever successful gun control resulted in this. Ergo, I must assume that this next successful gun control will also result in this. And therefore, you know, if I were any minority, I would also say, hey, I'm going to go along with the Jews on this. They they have history here, and maybe this all makes sense. So uh, in that regard, I think that the uh, the pattern is well established, that as soon as you've got an agenda slapped up against it, uh, then you know uh, that someone drove the initial event. They're not merely taking advantage of it. So as soon as I see an agenda, I go and I look for the drills. Or as soon as I see the uh, drills, I go and I look for an agenda to pop up. As soon as those pop up, you can dismiss it as yet another one of these uh, unfortunate episodes that the government's engineering. You know, one thing it's true about the Hitler law, it did prohibit Jews and other persecuted classes from owning guns. But the actual law that Hitler signed was actually the opposite. You know, he had revisions to deregulate the acquisition of and transfer of rifles and shotguns, as well as ammunition. And it also, while the legal age of purchase was lowered to from 20 to 18, um, permit lengths were extended from one year to three years. So it was not as severe as some people claim it to be. Or to have been. No, no, but we also have to understand that the first law that was signed in 1935 was subsequently followed by uh, amendments in late 36, I believe, that extended the uh, range of the populace that was not able to own guns to anybody they declared to be mentally incompetent for any reason whatsoever. And that's when they started using the uh, psychiatry against uh, political dissidents by making them mental incompetence. They couldn't proceed to vote. They couldn't um, own guns, et cetera, et cetera. They also extended it to um, people that were deemed to be genetically inferior. And that's when they started getting into the Superman issues. And it, so it was just an entry point, the thin edge of the wedge. It was not designed to be the um, end-all, be-all. And you'll note that that's how the Fabians are trying to do it here in the U.S. They're not saying, hey, let's grab all the guns. They're saying, oh, no, 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 this particular kind of a weapon is bad. And this particular kind of a bullet is bad. And all other bullets are either good or neutral in our opinion now. And then later on they'll say, uh-oh, something else happened here and, you know, this bullet is bad. And that's the way that it proceeded in England. Because they're and, and they try and get the assault rifles, and I agree. You know, <coughs> excuse me. Homeowners have no uh, uh, real reason for having an assault rifle and claiming it to be a hunting weapon. If I owned such a, a weapon, which I don't, because I'm, it's just not in my nature. Uh, I'd be upfront and candid about it. No, it's not a hunting weapon. It's a I'm frightened to death of my government weapon. And I'm with the 32 and a half other percent of the populace that now recognizes or, or thinks that the USA government is their number one enemy. And so under those circumstances, I would be at least upfront and honest with myself about, no, it's not a hunting weapon. I'm, I'm in with Patrick Henry in the, in the Second Amendment group in that sense that the greatest uh, threat to peace and stability is a government out of control. And hmm, I would say that ours certainly qualifies. And therefore, uh, I'm a realist and I have to recognize that I had relatives that went through that experience in Germany that got out in the 1939 period. And uh, these uh, individuals uh, had a lot to say about what was happening relative to the uh, social order, which even uh, uh, with the gap in our generations filtered down to me through my father because he used to listen to their stories. So um, 
uh, I'd say, you know, I have personal family, family history that says uh, A, B, and C are bad. I look out and I see, hmm, there's A. Maybe B and C are on the way. I'm not going to sit around and wait for it. They really want to try to take guns away from us, but they keep giving them through them, quote-unquote, through Benghazi, but that's a different story. But also, you know, yesterday when I saw the news, the first thing you turn on all the channels, the first thing you hear is, it's believed the suspects were armed with long guns, not handguns. And you heard that again and again. And as you say, they want to just talk about lung, lung handguns, I mean, uh, rifles, assault Correct. rifles, and so on, and then it becomes a slippery slope. But here's another fact that they're not talking about. In 2012, the latest year over which data is available, 64% of deaths from gun violence were suicides, compared with 57% in 2006. Why is that the media doesn't show that the majority of gun deaths were committed by suicide? Isn't that convenient for them not to talk about yeah, certainly, certainly, but I don't expect anything out of the media. I don't watch TV. I don't turn on those channels. Anything that's coming from corporate um, is uh, not worth my attention. Because For laughs, it, maybe. It, it, well, uh, but even then, it pollutes your mind, and uh, I have True. to be careful about that at uh, at very, uh, uh, very many different levels. So uh, I don't want to get front loaded. So I don't, for instance, go and read uh, prophecy sites or prediction sites. Right? I have to just have to be careful about who I'm talking of, uh, to during the process of doing reports. And I've come over time to understand that that there's some very um, uh, nasty inbuilt subliminals in basically all of the media, and I'm better off living without them. But no, I don't expect anything out of the propaganda other than propaganda and lies. So, of course, they're going to ignore the overall degradation of the social order that we're living in and tout the um, uh, uh, view that the, the false image presented by the powers at the top who wish to remain at the top even though the hill is crumbling out from underneath them. They just don't want to come down with the rest of us is all. But their their view is is paid for and uh, and shipped through the media. So uh, no, sorry, guy. To, it's kind of saying um, uh, asking the media to be truthful these days is like asking an alligator not to eat the chicken sitting next to its nose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it ain't gonna happen. <laughs> now, Parrish, Bataclan. Yeah. yeah, you probably have seen the pictures, unless you didn't want to pollute your mind. But all the bodies, and people are not noticing this, just a few, all the bodies seem to have been dragged. You see the blood trails dragged to position. And sure, I, like all... to, I like to watch the news immediately after, because a lot of times they're, they're edited months later or they're removed. And one thing I did notice, that one woman, a young woman there, called her family in Mexico to say that she was alive. And An hour later, dead. she was found dead. Yes, I'm aware of that ep uh, episode, right. The, the uh, shocking part of it was not only was she alive, but she was supposedly in protective custody of the, um, the French anti-terror police. And so I would presume in my own case now that if I saw any kind of a police organization uh, in my country, they are not my friends necessarily, even in the remote rural areas in which I live. And I'm going to be very careful about how I handle myself around them. And I personally would never assume that being taken into protective custody was a good thing. But that's basically what happened is that, you know, the assassination team that was sent out to, to kill all these people and make it look like an assassin, uh, make it look like a terrorist attack, uh, swooped up a bunch of people that, that were 
not too tightly controlled, and she was not the only one that reported that she was alive. There are two other instances, not of voice recordings, but of um, uh, social media reports. A Belgian people, man. Exactly, where the people then ended up in the pile of dead people, even though they had said, hey, hey, I'm alive, I'm over here, I'm safe, don't worry, and I'm in police custody. And then, you know, as you say, two hours later, their body is in the uh, pile, sh- having shown signs of being shot elsewhere and drug over there. But, but something even beyond all of that, okay? I don't really like um, concentrating on the uh, victims of these things. Uh, it's necessary that we look at it and recognize the horror of the time we live in. However, the very first thing that, occurred, that, that shocked me or, or um, that I noticed was the... Um, link between the economist um january 2015 uh cover oh the cover uh, the yes. cheshire cat the cheshire cat and the fact that the um amphitheater that this is all taking place in the the Bataclan, uh has as its symbol the cheshire cat on all the sides in in duplicate in on each side on each side of the entrance on every entrance there on each side of the entrance you'll find an image of the cheshire cat and so in January, The Economist knew that something was going to go down involving the, this, this site. I do not think that, um, uh, like myself, they pursue predictive uh, linguistics without uh, and thus are just guessing that something involving a Cheshire cat or you know, something involving arrows that, that turn out to give 11-13-2015 uh, as, a, as a date – are, are uh, psychic coincidences in their case because they're a Rothschild exactly uh, Rothschild family correct correct they're owned by the Bauer family who who claim to be the Rothschilds it's a Jewish family that converted their name in the 30s or 20s I believe um, and uh, have lived under the name of uh, Red Shield ever since and the Red Shield group um, uh, owns the Economist and puts out every year at least one predictive cover on what they plan to do with the planet over the rest of that year. And so you notice that we have a bunch of interesting um, other images on that cover that we have yet to have, quote, fulfilled. We've had some interesting ones like uh, what's-his-name and the, and the pig episode in England, you know, the British politician and the um, sexual antics with a dead pig head being referenced on the cover of The Economist. So they knew they were going to out this guy then. Uh, and if you, if you actually went ahead and, and read it in a particular way, in a symbolic way, you can count the number of individuals on the cover and uh, relate it to the passage of time. Look how these things are playing out and make our guess as to which one's up next. Uh, this is not really the time to go into that, but it's an interesting little thing. Should anybody want to just grab an image of that cover and look at the people and see the ones that are in color versus black and white and how the, um, the layout is, it's a, it's a calendar. And so they're telling you what's going on, uh, going to happen when. And there's still two items left for this month. You know, and, and coincidentally, this is the actual image I used as the art for tonight's show. I have it right here in front of me. If You're kidding. Anybody, no, not really. <laughs> I, I had it right. Well, you're a psychic son of a bitch, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I have it right here with me, and I'm looking at all the, 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 the things. For example, if anybody's... Just go to Google Images, folks, if you're listening, or because the the image that I have for for the show is so much small. But if you if you magnify it, you can take a look. For example, uh, Merkel. Merkel has her hands in a way of a pyramid, which she's just putting her hands in front of her, and the button looks like the all-seeing eye. And if you look at Merkel these days, what has happened to her? I mean, the influx of immigrants, and again, I'm not really an anti-immigrant person, but I also think that if you cannot handle your own home, 
You cannot bring so many people that's going to disturb your own home. And what's happening in Germany is just beyond my comprehension. What's your take on what's happening in Germany and the rest of Europe? It's part of a uh, larger plan, okay? It's happening in the Americas, both north and south. It's soon going to happen in Africa. Uh, and to a certain extent, it is uh, underway in many parts of Asia. And it's part of this um, uh, overall I don't want to say UN, let's just say uh, the Rothschilds, okay? They're the richest people on the planet. That's the absolute uh, fact. That one individual family owns more than Trillions. every other, owns more than the rest of the planet combined, okay? So let's just say that if we follow the money, these guys are the boss, All right? So let's just say that the boss of the planet has an agenda that does not like uh, strong um, uh, inter. Um, uh, popular cultural values. So in other words, uh, they don't want a strong Germany with a cultural identity uh, that the German people can hold uh, by looking out and seeing the reflection of themselves in a, in a more or less monothematic or monochromatic fashion. Okay, it's, It doesn't have to do with race. It has to do with culture. So it wouldn't matter what if the um, uh, in invading uh, quote refugees were actually Germanic people. It would not matter because what the uh, uh, the boss wants is this cultural conflict. It's necessary that the cultural conflict exist at a global level in order to break up the idea. In, in order to achieve several different aims, one of which is the uh, disruption of the idea of sovereign states or geopolitical identity, because they can't have that. That, that sort of a mindset doesn't work for them for their longer-range plans uh, that they have for humanity at this stage, in my opinion. I'm not of the opinion that they want to do um, depopulation. In fact, I think that they're actually going to work very, di very diligently to raise and keep the population very high as long as they can up against the coming struggles that we face as humans in our um, – uh, uh, immediate environment of the expanding earth and the climatic disasters and so on. The powers that be need the population base because the goal is to get us off this planet, to get them off this planet. And in order to do this, they, they, uh, they could have a long time ago chosen to go with tight, solidified cultural groups and play them off against each other. But because of certain things going on in the background, uh, which we can discuss at some other point or, or later on here, they chose to go the other opposite way, which was to shatter the cultural barriers that separate all the people, stir them all up and mix them all together, and try and create a uh, homogenous mass that can be directed. And the homogenous mass is, they understand, going to be uh, running at a, at a higher level of continual antagonism as all these different cultures, once the culture is broken up, as all the various different groups rub shoulders with each other and try and adjust and so on, it's going to create a level of cultural friction that the powers that be are going to attempt to use in their agenda to create a, um, let's just say, a pan-global uh, vision of humanity that they'll try and use to get us to lift them off the planet. Now, they'll do that by basically trying to create the sort of uh, image of Earth and our individual relationship with other people on Earth that would have been required to create the Star Trek kind of um, technology. Does that in any way make sense? 
it does make sense. And I keep looking okay. at this 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 picture. I'm still analyzing as you're speaking. I'm looking at Putin here. If you if you magnify somewhat, you can see on his gl- sunglasses, one of them is broken, almost as if somebody shot him. Right. Do you think that he's <laughs> right, against yeah. the powers that be, or is this just a facade? No, no, no. I think um, uh, I think people have uh, continually always um, misinterpreted uh, Putin. Uh, uh, he was a um, an honest nationalist uh, in the old days when he was in the KGB. Uh, he's not the avaricious. He's not motivated by money. Uh, he can get as much as he wants through as much graft as he wants, and he's just not motivated by it. He's a uh, a Russian peopleist or a populist. Um, uh, it's not even really the Russia as a geopolitical state. It's Russia is his, his, uh, basic core. Uh, he's a Paruski. Okay. He's, he speaks, um, uh, uh, Russian and his family is of the old Russians. It goes all the way back through the Ovs in terms of the language Romanov, you know, uh, these kind of people are the old Russians. And so, so Putin derives his, um, individual identity as a part of this this um, uh, meme or myth of the great Russian peoples. And so you'll see him acting out that image all the time as the heroic man against nature in the north. Romanov as, part- as in the Tsars, you mean? Yeah, but it predates them. The 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 Romanovs took the O F or, or O V and attached it to their to uh, their name in order to um, make themselves be part of the Rome uh, be be part of the older people. But you see it in all kinds of Russian names. Popov, uh, you know, any of the O F O V names are the original Russian peoples, and the Russian peoples have an identity. Um, uh, mythology that is very similar uh, in in some minor respects to that of the the uh, Israelis or the Jews, in the sense that they have this um, uh, mythology that at the beginning of the Russian people there were these X number of Russian tribes. There were you know uh, the Popovs and the and it just goes on and it and it delineates these these family names. And so if you have anybody in your family that that uh, is from any of these these other ancient families, then you're one of the ancient Russians. And Putin is of the ancient Russian lineage. And as I say, he's acting out uh, that identity with the Russian uh, populace at that level. And that's why he's so uh, beloved by all the other Russians, because he is acting as an archetypical um, representation for them in these current times. Now, he's not stupid, He's very well educated. He's a, uh, a military policeman. He's also a contracts expert, martial uh, artist. From, uh, correct, and he's and, and as a as a he's actually a kano jujitsuist, okay, or a judoist. But he's not a judo player in the sense of a um, uh, like the Olympic kind of competition judo. But nonetheless, the the point is that he's a grappler. And uh, as another grappler, I fully understand what he does and how he does things. And it's just such a uh, a shock to all these individuals that he lets you maneuver and get everything, and then he steps in real close and flips you very rapidly. So you know it's the speed that <laughs> that has frightened all of the um, uh, the powers that be because they're just not prepared for that kind of thing to be acting out now. So as a Russian nationalist, he is at this point 
um, not in any way acting in the um, interests of the powers that be and has incurred the wrath of the Rothschilds in various different forms year after year after year after year. They have to tolerate him. They bring him into some of these events because they can't deal with uh, certain issues without him. He's very much knowledgeable about what's going on. You notice that he's been telling more and more of the truth as he goes out uh, in, in public. Uh, five or six years ago, I don't think he would be addressing um, well, he would have had these conditions existed five or six years ago. I, I'm certain he would have taken the same tact. But what he does is, um, you know, he lets uh, the prime minister Turkey go on and on and on and deny and deny and deny and make all these absurd statements. And then he comes out with absolute proof uh, that the guy is a, you know, a corrupt, lying um, asshole mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and shows him up for what he is. And, and Putin has all kinds of information uh, that he'll be releasing as is warranted, but there's no need for him and in, uh, to release any of this uh, ahead of time. It's not like he's itching to cause a fight or whatever, but as a, uh, at a personal level, as, as a judo artist, he's a get-in-close, uh, real quick, and uh, into you know, uh, uh, flipping somebody around. So it's not, it's not um, uh, uh, war at a distance. Uh, let's digress for a second, okay, into an interesting bit of... Uh, social thinking about the human race and 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 other other kinds of beings okay so uh, it it exhibits in other species as well and for this is a the, i can't think of the two guys names but they um two of these sociologists i think they got or or, or arco anthro sociologist i'm not sure really how they um identify themselves but i think one of them got a a prize. I don't know if it was Nobel or not, but they came up with this uh, very interesting analysis. And they said that there's basically two types of any given individuals. And as the, um, the species you're dealing with rises up in, um, uh, they, they termed it intelligence, but let's just say consciousness, the ratio of the two individual types within that species changes. And we can identify these two individual types as R or K types. Now, they chose R and K. I didn't. And, and I find that somewhat... Um, as we'll go forward, you'll see that it's somewhat uh, erroneous, I think, in, or, or uh, just a, an irritating choice to use the K word. Uh, but in any event, let's, let's say that uh, these two people, or these two types are the R and the K levels. Now, the R's in society uh, can be thought of as um, people that are quite content to allow others to make the decisions and to direct them while conditions are suitable for the R mind. And so you could say, for instance, that the R mind is like a rabbit and sees all of the planet as an infinite uh, field of clover, not recognizing that its sight is limited and therefore it can't see that the field ends just five feet out of its uh, horizon, on the other side of its horizon, and that the field of clover is not infinite and therefore it should not um, breed willy-nilly, eat all day, and party all the time. So this is sort of an ant and grasshopper kind of a thing, only we're not dealing with, ant- with ants. We're dealing with uh, personality types that can be likened to the R's or, or the rabbit in the infinite clover field and uh, a pack of wolves, the K types, okay? And the, and the pack of wolves knows that regardless of what the rabbit thinks and how fast it breeds, there's only so many rabbits for it to eat. And so the pack of wolves does a few things that the, the rabbits don't. It invests a lot of time in each and every one of its offspring and does not breed indiscriminately because it knows that if it were to, to produce five pups, 
in a in an area where only three could be supported, then it's creating a problem for its own uh, offspring and and um, uh, is destructive to its uh, its own purpose in life, which is the furtherance of its DNA at that level. And we're sort of discussing things at that level at the moment. And so here's the, here's the difference when when you translate these ideas. So so for instance, the the K people are aware that the field is limited, that resources are limited. They like being aware of problems coming along. Uh, many people that you and I know that are in the, uh, what we would think of as the conspiracy world are K people by, uh, by nature because they, they feel a responsibility as I do for the provision of, uh, those people for whom I'm responsible. And therefore I want to make sure I can get my hands on the resources to provide to them. Therefore I look out ahead of those resources being used, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so that's sort of the K mentality. And you see that, that the R people don't really think that way. Uh, they're quite content to uh, indulge, if you will, at a conscious level here in the bread and circuses, never really questioning or desiring to question uh, the uh, orchestration of the bread and circus, circuses and why, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the ratio of R to Ks in society changes over time. So you'll notice that you find uh, things in history where you have um, uh, sociologists, philosophers, analysts, these kind of people say, and they'll say, uh, societies, republics begin stoic and end epicurean. Okay, so they begin willing as stoic people to put off today's gratification for the furtherance of their future generations. And so they're stoic about their own suffering and accept it as a, uh, and in fact, you know, to a certain extent, glorify it, you know, the 300 Spartans, all of this kind of thing, as a necessary part of the furtherance of the society. And therefore, these are great individuals because they were stoic and they held uh, these um, ideals and lived up to them. And the societies end in the Nero fashion as epicures, where they are no longer uh, Hadrian at the bridge defending, uh, you know, the the empire, but in fact are willingly inviting in the Visigoths and giving them um, uh, damaged and uh, degraded money and getting them to be mercenaries to go and fight other people to try and get more gold, et cetera, et cetera. So they're just participating in their own demise at the R level, and so the Epicureans grow over time because the society actually, it's really a kind of a, um, an interesting uh, idea when you look at it from a very high perspective because you start off with a society of Stoics and what allows the, the Epicureans to exist is the ratio of Stoics in the, in the initial part of it all uh, that are willing to put aside their um, uh, needs of the moment and so forth for the future and what does the future do but turn into epicureans uh you see my point right so putin in acting the way he is he's representing the k faction of humanity and where and there's a real interesting thing about this in the art of war okay you find that um and this is not from the art of war but sun tzu uh, but rather from uh, what they teach in the war college um in uh, leavenworth and so in the Army War College, if you go through that at the officers' levels there, they, they teach you that wars are really interesting. That some, some wars are fought by um, uh, people that are tentative about it. Well, it turns out that the tentative war people are, are always like the what we would call chicken hawks, the neocons and the neoliberals that have never been to war. There are type personalities that are sort of uh, got a little hint of, a, of the vision of the K personality, and they go to war for all these different kind of reasons. But they are not like a K person, because here's the thing. As a K personality, I know 
when you go to war, you unleash holy hell and you get it over with and you slaughter as many as your enemy as you can. And if you have to, you slaughter their kids so that you never, ever, ever have to face that situation again. So when it comes time for us to, as a humanity, to get rid of the last of the monarchs, should they not surrender peacefully, it will be time for humanity to do some really nasty, brutal things and kill innocent, as far as their their situation, children, because we cannot have them growing up to claim the the crown. Yeah, you get rid of the bloodlines. Correct. So that's a K personality thinking. Okay. Our personality is, oh, oh, let's go bomb them for five or six years and and do this and that and the other thing, right? Because the our personality sees the the um, this is just basically the infinite field of clover, and there's some minor stuff going on it, which will continue forever, and it's not a threat, et cetera, et cetera. But what they and, and in fact, the our personalities, when you get right down to it, are quite content and love the idea of war. And that's why the United States is currently at at perpetual war is because after the generation, after the great generation that suffered in World War II and all those people died, for us, it really was not a death toll. I mean, our level of death compared to the Russians or any other of the nation states really involved was minor. But nonetheless, we had a social change. In the 50s, the relative uh, proportion of the R population rose dramatically. And here's something about that. You'll always find that the R's are the chicken hawks, and they're more than willing to send off lots and lots and lots of the K-type personalities that, that volunteer to join in the war because the K personalities, that's what we do, is that, you know, when war breaks out, you need us to get in there and kick ass and, uh, and be brutalized ourselves by the process, but it's part of that stoic mindset. I know I don't want to kill people, but if it comes down to it, I'm going to just be the most horrific, bloody killing machine you can imagine, simply because it's necessary for the long-term survival of the society. And that's sort of the underlying um, narrative or or, um, uh, meme that's operating within the K mindset. But here's the R mindset. The R mindset is, oh, well, we're not in any real risk. Why don't we send off all of these really... um, uh, athletic, uh, pumped up K types to get slaughtered. That means there's more women for me to screw. And that's really the, the, the functional motivation, uh, within all these societies over time as the R values escalate, because you'll see that other things occur as stoicism is set aside and Epicureanism comes on into place. Uh, and you'll see all of those things being manifest in our society now. The, uh, and, and it's egregious. It's, uh, it's been, um, activated and preyed upon in a way not usually seen in other societies, I don't think, uh, by the Israelis and and uh, their masters, the Rothschilds. And let's not forget, by the way, that the Merkaba symbol and the Israeli flag was put there by the Rothschilds. The populace voted for the symbol of peace, the menorah, and Rothschild said, nope, you're going to have my symbol, which is the Merkaba. And they have it to this day. But in any event, in our society, we see things like, um, you know, hypersexualization, uh, the sexualization of the society being driven down into, into younger and younger ages, uh, as well as being ritualized in various different fashions, such that it's uh, more and more acceptable to quote the mainstream. This occurs over time with the rise of the R personality types. Uh, Stoics do not behave in this particular, in this manner. And you can track Stoic civilizations versus, or you can track republics as they go through these various different phases over time and see that the patterns are repetitious. And again, we're back to that, the whole thing about pattern recognition. And yep, here we are. We've got an interesting pattern at the moment. And that is that, that, uh, we're at the, um, 
the peak into the uh, point of failure of the dollar empire. And that's really how I characterize it. Because this way, if you happen to live under the sway of, of uh, the dollar in Guam, you know that you're going to get a, uh, a ration of the um, crap that's headed our way as the dollar dies. It's not really a geopolitical empire that can be identified as a state. You can say American empire, but it really doesn't encompass it because there's so many other factions that are also part of all of this. If you say Western, it's a little too vague for my liking. So I just say the dollar empire is dying, and as a result of which we see these, uh, all of these other manifestations that you usually see in, in the end times of any given empire. Yeah, when I see that we have been at war 93% of our time, 222 years out of 239, if yeah. you had to bet if we're going to war, and some people say, Mel, come on, stop saying that, meditate your problems away, think of love and, and peace. Of course I do think that, but when I see the president... I see where we're going. Take ISIL, ISIL, ISIS, Daesh, whatever you call it these days. At Alternative Media, we've been talking about this for some time now, that we think this was created by the CIA, Mossad. Otherwise, you would think that ISIL would be marching towards Tel Aviv, and they don't. So other intelligence agencies, military agencies, and they're financially backing, you know, by, by the USA, Saudi Arabia, and other countries in the Middle East, backed by, by Turkey which has been caught buying ISIS or oil stolen from Syria and Iraq. Isn't it interesting that we don't see that until now? Russia, Russia today is the one bringing that to the, to the forefront. You think the mainstream media or the people, mainstream people, are finally waking up to the fact that we are playing both sides? No, I don't. Uh, I think it's a, a, a thing of percentages. So here's, here's how it lays out. Uh, again, patterns, okay? Uh, we find that there are consistent patterns within the uh, social order that uh, emerges of biology. So in any given social order, it doesn't really matter where you are. The range of homosexual um, percent is between 1.5 to 1.8, sometimes as high as 2.1. In the exceptional period of time, after major wars in, in uh, major World War II action in uh, Central Europe and in the uh, four states war in... Um, uh, South America that also occurred in the 30s, uh, there were so many males uh, killed off that the population of homosexuals rose to almost 11% of the society, but that's the highest and that was very aberrant. But we look and we see that there's this like 2% rule that's everywhere, okay? 2% of the population is going to be natively addicted to addictive or receptive to nicotine. 2% will be natively addictive to virtually any substance you can think. Uh, if you look at any given time, you've got 2% of the populace that's probably sex addicts or out-and-out -out alcoholics. Now, there's a corollary to this, and that's the 8% follow-on. And so, for instance, if you'll note, if you wanted to go through the United States right at the moment, uh, you, and you wanted to count up all of the pews in all of the churches of any kind, all the religious institutions, all the tents, uh, anything that made any pretense to being religion, you would find that there's about enough pews to cover 2% of the populace in shifts, okay? For, so, for all the people that were to claim to be Christian and claim to go to church, if they were to actually show up, um, if we even took half that number and they were to actually show up, all the churches would have to run 24 by 7 and everybody would have to have two other people sitting in their lap. There are just not that many pews in existence. Now, there's a whole lot of big uh, noise at the moment about um, uh, a lot of people are saying, oh, uh, uh, Putin is practicing a religious war against the Muslims because under his um, uh, period of time, there's been 25,000 churches created in Russia. Well, we're back to the 2% level. 
during that period of time of the Bolsheviks at all, they burned down and destroyed all the churches, That's reducing right. the total number of pews down to far less than 2%. The 25,000 that have been created in the last um, 10 and a half years. And they're just uh, being rebuilt. Correct. <laughs> so it brought us back up to the 2% level. And so you can go on and on and on. So no, I don't think the general populace is going to wake up. What happens though is this. It's the same thing that was identified in Crossing the Chasm and any number of other uh, business books, okay, about, especially about the introduction of technology. You've got the uh, people that are visionaries that see this uh, thing for the first time and they use it from that point on. Uh, so I saw at Microsoft in 1990. Two, I was in an office working with some other people, and we all saw for the first time this thing that had just popped up from CERN that was called Mozilla. It was the very first browser. So it was the very first example of HTML. In 92? In 92. Wow. Right? And so we were all instantly um, uh, floored by HTML. And by 93, it was in you know widespread use among all of the people I knew as coders. Uh, and so we moved, uh, moved it from visionaries into early adopters. And then over time, of course, it comes down into the mainstream. Look how long, relatively short, actually, it took for the uh, mainstream populace to get really heavy into computers. And then look how long it took, relatively short, again, for the mainstream populace to get into handheld computers, i.e. smartphones. So we're taking, looking at about a four and a half to five year uh, cycle. So what we're looking at here with the press and this kind of thing is basically uh, the 2% rule, but there's an 8% follow-on. And the best way to, to, to um, provide this as an example is that 2% uh, of the people natively like to exercise, but a total of 10% of any given population will be exercising because there's 8% of the populace that will go along with that 2%. There's 8% that will always go along with the 2%. So you'll find, for instance, in almost any cause, you'll get up to about a 2% level of local populace, and it'll kick over, and then you'll find that there's others, the 8% followers on. They don't really believe it, but they're willing to go along with it because it seems to be working for you. And, it, and there they want it to work for them. And so you reach this point where you get 10%, and once you've reached 10%, it's solidified as part of your social order, whatever it is, you know, jogging or, or uh, this kind of thing. But once you, again, once you fall below a certain level of uh, percentage of adoption, uh, it falls away because everything goes through these cycles of time. So we're in a cycle of time when we're, we're running into what I call secrets revealed. Now, secrets revealed in, in our sense was a uh, metadata layer. So I have to stop for a second and explain that if you wanted to look at our data as though it were in a giant spreadsheet, uh, a column uh, would cross very many different subsets, and you may find a meta metadata layer would exist in a particular column if in that column every single one of the subsets represented by the rows held the same value. So for us, uh, a metadata layer was like secrets revealed. We would find it in this subset being referenced by the data. We'd find it in another subset. All over the, the all of our model space, we kept running to the idea that secrets would be revealed. And uh, this was associated with long-term values. We had all different kinds of descriptors uh, for this occurring, including things that at the time seemed wildly improbable. So let me hearken us back to old Alta reports that talked about data dumps coming into the general populace in two specific instances, which at the time could never have been uh, possible for us to foresee, okay? I mean, in, in, a, in a, a rational sort of a, a universe. And so we're, we're talking irrational web botch stuff here. But uh, in 2004 and 5, we had secrets revealed for 
uh, where the Vatican would be involved in riots that would break through the uh, supporting police structure and, and the Vatican would be looted. And in the process of being looted by the rioters, uh, which was going to be a food-related issue, the rioters would, would end up breaking into a library and uh, some people would see what was going on and all of a sudden cell phones would be clicking and people would be taking photos of all of this treasure trove of all this hidden knowledge which would come out on the internet. Another instance very similar to that was to take place somewhere in the region of Delaware, um, Maryland in general, okay? Uh, and, and it could be as low as, as Virginia, but in some kind of a hidden uh, situation, uh, rioting is again going to break out that will intrude upon and cause damage to a uh, hidden storage facility, again with all kinds of records, that will then be looted by or liberated by the rioters. And again, it'll be an instance of cell phones taking pictures and so on. Now, in 2003, 4, and 5, when these um, long-term data sets were shaping up and we first started talking about these instances, I had no way of knowing what the, quote, set and setting is going to be for uh, the things popping up. But you and I can both sit here right now and imagine a near-term future where there are so many refugees in Italy concentrated in Rome that food riots break out because they're all starving. Or we could have the same kind of thing occur as a result of some other motivation in the Maryland region. And thus, thus we now have a world moving into a situation where way back when we said, oh, look, uh, you know, secrets are going to be revealed in this metadata layer about this time as these, these various different things occur. And it's like, oops, well, we're sort of here now. You know, when I think of everything that's happening in the Middle East and all these refugees, you know, the crisis, I think, it, you know, we're supporting ISIS and the rebels, they're bombing cities in Syria, which is costing millions to emigrate, of course. If we weren't there in the first place, this wouldn't be happening. So, are we causing the entire problem? But then when you tell an average person of, of this, they look at you as if you're crazy. And it's tough to live in a world where people are so brainwashed by the media. So I'm glad we have this platform to share the truth. I, I agree. I'm, I'm glad as well. I mean, the last 25 years would have been um, terrible for both of us if we'd had to do this in isolation. But here's something, too. Uh, and, and I'm going to get on your case here because I'm older than you and I feel I have that right. But you've got to start watching your language. You're going to get into problems talking to the sheeple if you use the we word. You say we are supporting ISIS. I am not supporting ISIS, so I'm really, really clear about that. ISIS, ISIL, all of this is this is caused by the power cabal, cabal that's coming out of Washington, D.C., and the tool is probably uh, first instigated through the use of the CIA. Bad choice of semantics. Let me rephrase. When I well, say see, there's we. There's the point. There's yes, the point. You're yes. talking to a linguist in here, and we've got to be very clear Parsing about this. Parsing words, because, yep. Yep, but here's the thing, too. The very first act, and I know this from personal experience, the very first thing you you think about after an enlightenment experience is that the proper labeling of your experience in reality. And so you will find that the closer that you come to understanding your own consciousness and experiencing it as an enlightenment experience, the closer you will come to the point where you must, at all circumstances, even if it brings you problems, be clear about what you're experiencing to yourself. And this, of course, uh, brings great clarity to your uh, thinking and to your interactions with others, especially because you're uh, specific about delineating the thoughts within the language. So I'm very careful to, I try diligently, and I'm certain I fail all the time, but I try very diligently to not be uh, sloppy and inclusive when I'm truly not 
trying to describe such a situation. So I will say we when I mean all of us poor schlubs suffering at the hands of the of the uh, power elite uh, and the criminal um, Kabbalists that run the United States. But will I identify myself with them or any of their political processes or any of their um, outpouring of evil on the planet? No. And, you know, my father was in the military and fought a number of wars for this country and was totally disillusioned by 1968. And in the process, he was quite a dammit uh, when it uh, you know, I got into those kind of situations of always presenting at, at a young age, you know, faced with no work, going into the military potential, this kind of thing, of presenting the horror that the U.S. military truly was. Great people, evil mission. And that was basically his summation for it, was that, you know, the some of the best people on the planet you could find in the military. And at the same time, the whole thing was so evil that he he uh, detested his participation in it. But by that time, by the time he realized it, it was far too late. He was a lifer, had been in, you know, 25 years, believed the, the propaganda, etc., right? So we, we just have to be careful about this because it is not we that are doing these things. You know, you can be very specific. You could say Obama uh, if you wanted to get that level or you could, you know, come up with other, other words. But it also helps to clarify your own thinking about what you're observing. And I you don't I, I stand you do corrected. not wish to identify with it. I stand corrected, duly duly noted. And by the way, Saudi Arabia, and we'll we'll start with the Alta report momentarily, but Saudi Arabia, they have over one hundred thousand empty air conditioned tents that could house up to three million refugees. And these tents about what, twenty one hundred miles from Syria in the city of Mina, Mina, like Arkansas, are only used a few days a year to house pilgrims on their way to Mecca. And guess how many refugees they're housing? A big whopping zero. Why isn't the world demanding that Saudi Arabia, a country that shares more culturally with the refugees than any other they're heading to? Why are, are we demanding that they you know, house some of them? Well, there's the whole thing. I mean, uh, I don't know why the world doesn't demand shit. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I can't tell you why the world isn't on everybody's case. If it were me, I'd be over there, you know, in a situation, you know, uh, raising some hell about it because you shouldn't treat people this way. However, here's some, some things to recognize. The House of Saud owns Arabia. It was given to him by the Brits in 1920s. Yeah. The House of Saud is actually Jewish. Uh, they were a Jewish uh, family of servants uh, to the last of the Saud. When he died, they took the name and took all the possessions, and they've been um, uh, outwardly facing Muslims ever since, but secretly practicing as Jews. You're the second uh, person in two days who enlightens me about this. David Livingstone told me that yesterday. You're kidding. Oh, coincidence. Just popping up all over, guy. Yeah. But uh, no, this is known for years and years and years. I mean, um, uh, Muslims are, are like any other populace. 2% of their populace are alcoholics. 2% are drug addicts. In Saudi Arabia, they really don't like either. And uh, the will of the state is uh, just uh, totally against this and will kill you and, and do terrible things to your body should they uh, find this, even to the point of extracting blood from you as you come into their country, even if you're not a citizen, and arrest you for bringing in THC into the country in your own blood should you have smoked a joint in uh um, you know, within 30 uh, days or whatever, and it was uh, able to be tested. They can do that level of stuff. Yet, uh, uh, the, of the 3,000 princes uh, that are um, at the top, or, top part of the echelon, uh, almost all of those 3,000 princes uh, have 
been seen uh, consuming alcohol, prostitutes, and drugs in all these various Western uh, pleasure centers, Las Vegas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's one guy I know is a fanatic about it, and he's got pictures of the 3,000 fellows, and I think he's tracked like 2,370 or something last time I talked to him, uh, that have, he's got photos of them out being non-Muslim. And, uh, and, you know, they're sm drug smugglers and all of this kind of thing, and they behave in many ways just as their Israeli cousins do. So, uh, so it's it, it, not too much of a leap of faith to imagine the situation uh, that led to the House of Saud being in existence, especially since we find that the same Rothschild hand was behind the Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Iraq wasn't a country prior to the Rothschilds coming on in with through the Brit Brits in the 1920s and, and creating the Middle East as we know it. So the... Um, uh, the world demanding action out of Saudi Arabia, I would think, is uh, kind of useless. I'm not demanding anything out of them because they're never going to change. They have their own agenda. And we also are seeing playing out a divide and conquer strategy. There are those at one level that are claiming that the uh, Western powers don't want to have a unified Muslim world. And so, therefore, we support Shia against um, uh, Shiite and, uh, you know, the Wahhabi and their their plans, et cetera, et cetera. And we're trying to promote Muslim on Muslim violence. Well, that's now, the point. Aren't they the ones, for example, you have, uh, just to pick one company, Norton and a virus. They need mm -hmm. viruses out there in order to keep surviving. Aren't they the <laughs> one spreading the virus of Wahhabism or extremism by creating these schools around the Middle East that, in essence, they're brainwashing the kids to become terrorists and therefore keep the war machine going. Correct, correct. And the Saudis have uh, plenty of reason for this uh, because of their very tenuous situation uh, within their own um, uh, region and their own country. So uh, their power base is, is uh, very, very, very broad. Uh, let, let's put it this way. Uh, their um, power pyramid is top-heavy. Uh, it's not an, it's not a totally unbalanced one, but it's very top heavy. And so the, uh, it comes down in a pyramid shape and then gets to like the broken pyramid in Egypt goes to kind of sort of shoulders that go on down. And from the shoulders on down in their power pyramid are all foreign, uh, workers, uh, most of whom are Muslim, uh, many of whom are, um, uh, trained by the Wahhabis, but many of whom are anti-Wahhabi uh, because of where they happen to come from. So, so Saudi uh, imported a lot of their own problems, uh, and their power pyramid is such that this, from the shoulders on down, everybody is working their butts off to support the very heavy top of the pyramid, which is these three thousand princes and all of their families and all their business occupations and so on. And it's a very um, uh, totalitarian state where if the Saudi family doesn't like you, you don't get work. And they are that vindictive that they go down and hassle people that used to be maids and, you know, say something wrong about them. And thereafter, that maid can't find work in her life or his life or it's just hell. Uh, so it's not a uh, doesn't have a whole lot of popular support by the people that are actually living in country, many of whom are now in their second and third generation, in spite of the fact that the Sauds try and kick everybody out at least once a generation and then have them come back in so that they don't have any idea or, or of permanency. They've now got a situation where they have second and third generation servants uh, that are starting to uh, feel like native Saudis, yet they have no rights, they don't have citizenship, and so on. And so the 3,000 princes in their uh, very top-heavy pyramid, they continue to keep growing at the top while the, the base of the, of the pyramid keeps shrinking, and it's going to fall over. Now they've also done something really stupid, which was to attack Yemen, uh, which is kind of like... Um, 
the Brits' decision to try and take Khartoum and hold it against the uh, Somalis. Now, uh, made famous by Rudyard Kipling's poem about the fuzzy wuzzy uh, because of the Somalis' hair. Uh, but the Somalis took on the greatest empire on the planet, armed only with sticks, stones, and, and spears. Uh, they beat that army, the, the British army, to a standstill and then drove them back in, in horrific defeat. Uh, like the only other people that have done that have been the Afghanis. Uh, so uh, it's kind of a situation where uh, attacking the Yemeni is the same uh, going to result in the same problems for Saudi Arabia that uh, was coincident with the British Empire attacking the Somalis. Um, because it's, it represents at a larger pattern kind of a position, that was the, the nexus, the nadir, the, the peak, the zenith, the pinnacle of the British uh, pound power was at that period of time when it was engaged in all these wars and the opium trade, etc., and we find that the pinnacle of Saudi power is also at this point now going to be um, uh, peaked out against uh, their involvement in this uh, terrible foreign war with the Yemenis, who, like the Somalis, cannot be defeated um, at all, ever. I mean, these are, these are people you just don't want to mess with. So, uh, so the poor Sauds, you know, I knew the minute that they did that, the minute that they crossed the border into Yemen, uh, that was the end of their organization. So I don't expect Saudi Arabia to exist five years from now, as we understand it. I don't even think it'll be a contiguous, um, country even then. And of course there's going to be major repercussions from this because once the Saudi family goes, there goes the support for all the Wahhabi schools all throughout Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Kashmir, you know, all around the planet. Uh, because that money supply is all, well, it's already going. I mean, they're already suffering now. I'm getting reports out of Pakistan that a lot of the Wahhabi schools are having to um, resort to local begging because their Saudi masters don't have the money to send to them anymore because of the oil issues. Well, I hope the Wahhabist virus dies soon, but it's interesting that Saudi Arabia is the only country name in the Middle East associated with a family name, and Saudi means belongs to Saud. So unless you're not a part of the monarchy, you're in essence a slave of the House of Saud. Correct. Yeah, and if you're not part of them, you do not exist. You're merely, you know, a tool. Now, Tara, let's begin with Tara, and then we'll have to take a one and only break. And we have so much to discuss, but Tara, what do you see for Tara in 2016 and beyond? Uh, Hang on a second. Let's back up for just a second. Continue with this thought for just a just a bit here, sure. okay? And that is that the if we if we look at the um, issues that are going on with the destruction of the empires and all of this kind of stuff, and go all the way back to that Economist cover, you see on that Economist cover a mushroom cloud, and thus the uh, potential for nuclear war, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, a very curious thing has happened here recently that uh, even though it is small, should not be overlooked. And that is that the federal government gave a particular person explicit permission to publish a theory that, ha that he has enough evidence, to, in my mind, to, to uh, have proven. So I think his theory is proven by the evidence that he's presented. And, and this is a fellow that anybody can go find on YouTube. And he was, was uh, speaking, I'm sorry, I don't know his name. Uh, I'll dig it up and uh, pass it on. But he was speaking at this last... Uh, uh, secret space program conference in 2015 at uh, some place in Texas. It's on YouTube, secret space program. And um, 
uh, I think it was called Death on Mars or Death of Mars. And this is very apropos to us because here's this guy's theory. His theory is that Mars was destroyed, uh, that they had a civilization uh, that we can see uh, from remnants coming through the photos that they're not able to hide a lot of icon, uh, uh, icons and symbols that, that show us a civilization that, that in many ways resembled the Mayans. And that these, the civilization on Mars, some time ago in the past, he says 250 million years, but, but, and I dispute that based on the solar change and the degradation of uh, radioactive isotopes, but that's neither here nor there. But his theory is that it was destroyed by hydrogen bombs that were, that were dev, um, detonated at very specific spots, uh, airburst, intended to cause the largest possible damage to all living beings and as a subsequent um, uh, side effect caused nuclear winter to settle over Mars, leaving it the frozen hulk that we see now. So now here's the interesting parts. Uh, you can go and see his proof, which is all about the xenon uh, isotope ratios. And the guy's absolutely correct about all of this. Uh, so, but what's interesting is that the government told him to go and talk to people, let people know. And so here we are now facing the potential for nuclear war, and which will lead to nuclear winter. And the people behind the throne, maybe even behind the Rothschilds, have finally gotten it off, off their butts to the point where they're saying, uh-oh, we're coming up to that same precipice again. We've got to start bringing this out now. Only it's, we've already used the nuclear winter card before, and it, it worked. You know, Carl Sagan, all of those people, it, it uh, brought us down from the uh, Cold War uh, heights of um, insanity with H-bombs and so on. Uh, but now that, that meme is worn off, so they need something new. So what better than absolute proof that this path yields this result? Okay, the destruction of a whole planet and the society and everything. But here's the real killer on this. This is the, the thought kicker that, that I find just absolutely fascinating. If we postulate that this guy is correct, that, that uh, not only he's correct about the xenon isotope, he's correct about the hydrogen bombs being used to destroy Mars, he's correct about nuclear winter. Now, if we postulate that he's also correct about that social order that existed that was so destroyed by these uh, hydrogen bombs, and then let's forget about the why, but let's ask ourselves, who would have done it? Who could have brought in hydrogen bombs to destroy a planet when the planet was at a social order that we think of as the Mayans? So now let's look at our own Mayan people and their many images of coming to Earth in spaceships that are all throughout their very uh, extensive uh, uh, symbology and, and all their writings and all their uh, intense uh, carvings and drawings. And we have this definite Mars to uh, Earth link. Now, it may have been that that social order, in spite of its symbols and, and what we think of as primitive nature of pyramids and so on, was highly sophisticated. But it could be that it was also not. Let me just say this, uh, speaking of, of, of these detonations that you're talking about, what about the degradation of radioactive isotopes in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? They're thriving cities 70 years later. And what about New Mexico? The detonations these were, there. These were not, yeah, but these were not hydrogen bombs, okay? There's a, there's a big difference between the two types. And even within hydrogen bombs, there's a big difference between the two types of, uh, of hydrogen bomb explosions. Because, see, here's the thing. Um, uh, a hydrogen bomb can be thought of, and this is just a, 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 
a little mental construct for us. It can be thought of as setting off a nuclear bomb, letting the explosion go out quite a ways, and then introducing more fuel into the explosion in the form of this radioactive hydrogen isotope. Okay, so basically what's going on in that thinking would be like a, um, a bariatric bomb where you put all the fuel in the air and then you shoot something in to explode it. And so you are involving nature within the process the way that the atomic bomb does not. So for instance, when these things were detonated on Mars, there was a concussion blast followed by an implosion, followed by another concussion blast. And so you might literally have had a situation where if there had been, say, a four-story building, it would have been um, uh, vaporized and turned into dust and blown 500 miles away by the initial concussion blast. And then most of it sucked back and deposited as dust before the next concussion blast came out uh, that really wiped things out. So we're talking an order of magnitude uh, that is beyond anything in the atomic range. Once you start talking about hydrogen bombs, you're talking actually about a different mechanism of destruction. And, and uh, let's also be quite clear here. The airborne detonation with the intent to to destroy as much possible uh, much area as possible uh, uh you'll see from his uh, charts and stuff that this particular kind of green glass that we see uh uh in these deserts up there was caused by this explosion and it was d done in such a way as to maximize the damage that way that also totally uh, these two two explosions alone had enough energy in them to probably do away with a third of the atmosphere, not only in the destruction of oxygen, but literally blowing the stuff out into space as a result of the uh, overall uh, concussion waves, right? Because they move in, in, in spheres. So the same stuff that's moving things a thousand miles away because of the uh, explosion is moving part of the atmosphere a thousand miles higher. And a lot of it doesn't come back. So the effect was, was truly uh, planetary and horrific. Now in the United or in, in, on earth, we even find examples of those same things though. And so we've got to be really clear about this. The same kind of green glass that we see in Mars is also here in the in uh, on Earth and several different deserts. This Arab Peninsula is one of them. Correct, correct. And we also see it in uh, what we think of as the Sudan and Greater Egypt, and it's in Mongolia. It's in a lot of the uh, uh, desert areas. The one place we don't see it with large deserts is in the Americas, and that may be because the Americas is. Uh, uh, continents were not involved, not populated at the time of the wars that went on that created the green glass here on our planet. If we postulate that they were approximately the same age as the one on Mars, then we can come to an even further conclusion, which is real speculation. And that would be that there was some kind of an interplanetary sort of thing going on, warfare, that resulted in the destruction of what was known as the fifth planet, or Marduk, which we now see as the debris field of the... Um, um, the asteroid belt. Correct, the asteroid belt. There's also another aspect of that, and that is that if we look at Jain cosmology, Jain is perhaps the oldest religion on the planet. The oldest continuous uh, record-keeping group on the planet are the, is what we know of as the Jain religion. We call them Jain uh, because most of the people involved in the, in the core of the religion have that as a, as a part of their name taken from their, their religion. But there's something very unique about that in that, that they have a cosmology that is different than all the other cosmologies of all other religions or people on the planet. And their cosmology, their, their creation myth, if you will, in, goes back so far that it references humans of different colors on, on two and a half islands of, of life here in 
our solar system. Now, many people today take that two and a half islands reference to mean Mars, Earth, and the moon, as I did originally. I fell into that camp initially. Now I'm not so sure. Now I think the two and a half islands of life are Mars and Marduk, and Earth is the half island of life because we were newly populated at the time that the wars broke out that destroyed Mars and and totally devastated the planet Marduk. Now, here's one other aspect of this that we have to consider, that there's a, a potential for speculation that what all the stuff I've just said is all BS in terms of the Marduk stuff, the destruction of the planet came about some other, uh, some other way, not involved, et cetera, et cetera, because there is one possibility that we must consider, that some peaceful uh, humanoids, more or less peaceful, non non-spacefaring, uh, uh, single-planet isolated humans were wiped out deliberately by some non-human uh, species uh, for the express purpose of wiping them out. And that, that so some advanced civilization came here from some other place and found humans on Mars and decided, uh-oh, uh, and exterminated them. And that may well be the case. Now, before we take the break, what I meant to say, and I'm not disputing what you're saying, that's probably Dr. John Brandenburg, who you're referring to from the Secret Correct. Space Program. Correct. Yes. You know, when I think of the of, of uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, how is it that people live there today and there's absolutely no proof, apps whatsoever, of any data, actually, subsequent cancer deaths attributable to radiation? And then I think of the, the detonations in New Mexico, where... You see all those props, miniature props being used. And I wonder, is are nuclear weapons just a hoax and it's simply fear? No. You can use no. as a weapon? No, because we know that this is uh, not the case, that these are quite real and horrific because the explosions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed uh, vast quantities of people. But uh, we also find that the radiation issues you're talking about in both of those cases are ameliorated by the people that were attacked. The Japanese have a very high alkaline diet. They uh, eat all kinds of foods natively that are radiation removing, that are toxic removal. And we find that the American peoples do not, as a rule, uh, ingest these substances. And therefore, those American peoples in the populace of the Southwest, uh, my generation especially, that were kids at the time of all the nuclear tests, suffered horrifically with thyroid cancers, pituitary cancers, mm -hmm. all kinds of cancers here in the United States, except those people that were Japanese and happened to have a more traditional Japanese diet that included, among other things, uh, natto and exactly, exactly, and miso and some of these um, uh, fermented reactive foods. So if you happen to be Japanese, and you were my age, and you were born in the Southwest, and you ate from traditional Japanese foods, you were probably protected against the same kind of radiation that killed several cousins of mine that lived in that area. But if you were to go there right now with a, a, a radiation you know, detector re, you know, mechanism or, or, or device, wouldn't you be able to detect that there's plenty of radiation there because it degrades in, what, thousands or millions of years? No, see, there's there's sort of the fallacy about this, right? I've gotten really into the radiation detection as a result of the Fukushima thing. And I've got some very highly accurate uh, calibrated uh, uh, radiation meters here that are at the top end of the line with the paddles and the whole deal. And they're great for, be great for sampling foods and that kind of thing. But to do a, go and do an ambient radiation study, uh, just waving the thing around in the air as you walked around in the desert, you're not going to find anything necessarily uh, that's going to be stronger than the background radiation. The reason for this is that even in deserts, you're going to get the permutation of the heavier radioactive isotopes further and further and deeper and deeper into the soil. So really, if you want to look for it, you got to go and dig. 
Okay, so the even now, even in these few years of uh, only uh, what sixty some odd uh, years uh, since the nuclear test, even now you don't find uh, a lot of the stuff on the surface, and you have to go down uh, into deeper layers of the sand because of deposits, the infrequent rains, even and so on. Up here in the northwest, we've we've got a very uh, nice situation at the moment. That no matter how much radiation is blowing in from Fukushima, as long as we get our rains, we're sort of protected because our ground is so porous. It's so filled with clay and, and various different kinds of glacial fill rocks. Uh, and it's designed with all the trees and the roots and everything to just wick away all of the water because we get so much of it that it takes the radiation out of the air, puts it into the ground and, and drives it further and further and deeper and deeper into the, um, uh, into the soil. I would not, for instance, eat mushrooms for another five years that are locally um, uh, harvested in our forests because of the Russians have a, uh, the mushrooms have a tendency to concentrate mushroom uh, the radiation as we saw from uh, Chernobyl and even years later they're still concentrating it at significantly uh, nasty levels. But other than that, we're not seeing a whole lot of the effects in the environment because it's getting washed down into deep levers of the soil. Well, now let's take a, a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dive into, into Alta. A lot of people are asking about the markets, you know, where are we going to be next year as it relates to the dollar? We just heard, contrary to all the experts who said that China's yuan was not going to become a reserve currency, well, contrary to what they believed, they, it just happened. And I want to know what's going to happen next year. The global pop, the USA, Europe, China, and even let me add Japan to that, and so much more. Even space goat farts when we come back. Cliff, how can people buy the report and all the previous ones? Uh, you can just go to halfpasthuman.com. Uh, there's uh, right at the very top, there's a link to uh, how to buy the latest report. And, and it's all on a one big page that goes back uh, years and years and years. So if you want to go way back and buy all of the older ones. Excellent. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm delighted to have my friend Cliff High. Again, another season premiere. Can't believe this is season eight. <laughs> yeah, scary. You're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Much more when we return. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. It's a beautiful world I like swimming in the sea I like to go out beyond the white breakers Where a man can still be free Or a woman if you are one I like swimming in the sea Oh my, 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 it's a beautiful world I like drinking Irish tea With a little bit of lapsang sushi I like making my own tea 
is a beautiful world I like driving in my car I roll the top down Sometimes I travel quite far And drive to the ocean And stare up at the stars I like driving in my car All around is anger Automatic guns It's death in large numbers No respect for women Or our little ones I tried talking to Jesus But he just put me on hold he Said he'd been swamped by calls this week He could not shake his cold And still this emptiness persists Perhaps this is as good as it gets Giving up the drink and those nasty cigarettes. I leave the party early, at least with no regrets. I watch the sun as it comes up, I watch it as it sets. Yeah, this is as good as it gets. So, my, 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 it's a beautiful world. I like swimming in the sea. I like to go out beyond the white breakers Where a man can still be free Or a woman if you are one I like swimming in the sea